1, 15 to 22. Once you're there, if you'd stand with me and we will read together. There's two names in here that might trip you up. Shifra and Pua. Great names for any daughters, if anybody's <laughs> having them. So uh, go ahead and stand up and we'll read together. One, two, three, read. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning as we enter into your word that we would know you. And by knowing you, we would understand ourselves. God, we pray that you would bless this time, that you would open our ears that we may hear. Lord, I need your help. And you are faithful. You're faithful. Your word will go forth and it will accomplish its intended purpose. So we pray that it would do so this morning. It's in your name. Amen. I love reading out loud because you get the humor in the text as you're trying to say, but the Hebrew women were more vigorous. And you're picking up on something that's there that maybe you wouldn't have picked up on if, if I would have just read alone. So I love that that happened. I have a question for you this morning, and it's going to require some thought, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a simple question. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? I want you to just think about that for a moment and then I'll give us some things to be afraid of if we can't think of anything. What are you afraid of? This last week as I was working on some of this, uh, I opened up a couple of news apps and this is what the news apps just are telling us we should be afraid of and, and these are um, actual titles of articles that I just found in the last week. The first one I really love, they are among us. <laughs> Russia's terrifyingly effective poisoning operation. That got real serious. <laughs> one of America's biggest cities may only be months away from running out of water. 
Eight reasons you're losing your hair. <laughs> 39 wildly entitled, selfish, and creepy neighbors who decided they were the only people on their street that mattered. The carry-on baggage bubble is about to pop. Wedding is wrecked when guest misidentifies the bride, got upset, and started crying. Better watch out. Your wedding could be ruined by a plus one who doesn't know you. <laughs> then I just started to scroll through social media for a minute after this, and I went to a, a, a popular news site for just local news, El Paso, um, on social media. And the first four posts, this is not a joke, the first four posts I saw was about a house fire and a family that lost everything. Uh, then there was multiple posts about car accidents, like terrible car accidents with all the traffic that's going on and the mess on the freeways right now. Um, then it was burg burglary uh, over at the outlet shops and then assault. Those are the first four posts. Add on to that, war in Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Hamas, an election year that's growing and gearing up to be one of incredible political turmoil. And you should be afraid of everything. That's the way that our world messages to us. Be afraid. Be afraid of everything. And here's the crazy thing. The most com repeated command in Scripture, more than anything else, is do not fear. Do not be afraid. I'd like to argue from our passage this morning that the way God's people are called to live in a fear-driven world is to replace our fear with fear. The way God's people are called to live in a fear-driven world is to replace our fear with fear. What I'm trying to argue this morning is not faith over fear. I'm trying to argue fear over fear. Let's remember where we're at in our text. God's people are in a place where they cannot see God and they cannot understand what he is doing. They're in Egypt and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he has decided that he doesn't like the fact that they are growing, that they are multiplying. He doesn't like that God is fulfilling his promises to make them a great nation, and so he enslaves them. And the text talks about their slavery as wicked and harsh. He deals harshly with them, but God's promises prevail even in the midst of that persecution. They continue to multiply. God is still at work preserving his people. He's still at work fulfilling his promises. He's still at work making them into a great, great nation. But even as that's happening, the slavery gets harder and harder. The last verse we read together in Exodus, Exodus 1.14, uh, before this morning, is in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What do God's people do? What do we do? when we cannot see God and we can't understand what God is doing. Well, they hold on to God's promises and they hold on to God as a person, his character. 
There's a theme here in the beginning of Exodus. It's a theme that's going to help us understand our Bible in a lot of ways and even understand our cultural moment. And it's a theme of exile. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, we're, we're being told a story. A story about God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. Exile is the idea of God's people being outside of God's promised place where he promises to give his people rest. So Genesis 1 and 2, the garden, it's the place of rest. And due to human sin, due to humans rejecting God as creator and, and deciding to be God themselves, they are exiled from the place of rest. In the book of Exodus, where we land this morning, the land that God will promise to his people to be a place of rest, it's not a promise that's been fulfilled yet. They're enslaved. They're strangers in a strange land. Later on in the, in the book of Jeremiah, the land God has promised has become a place of brokenness because of human sin. And so God's people are exiled. They're removed, and removed to Babylon. And then the New, Test, New Testament picks up this idea as well. Peter, he writes a letter, and he talks about the place of God's people as a place of exile. A place of exile. He looks forward to the new heavens, the new earth where God will dwell with his people fully. And finally, that is the place of rest. But now, believers, on this side of eternity, we wait for that place of rest in exile, longing for God's promises to be fulfilled. Exile is apocalyptic. It's end-of-the-world type stuff. It's God's people outside of God's place in waiting for the fullness of God's saving promises. In exile, we're living under the rule of wicked kings and then we're called to faithfulness as we await the true king. And the question becomes, how do we as a people of God remain faithful under wicked rulers? I mean, come on, that is relevant. Well, throughout scripture, scripture, God's people in exile, specifically in the book of Daniel, which is a book of exile, the book of Revelation, another book of exile, are called to wisdom. Wisdom. We're called to have wisdom, to be a people of wisdom. It's a consistent refrain. You and I need wisdom to remain faithful in Exile outside of God's place. We need wisdom. And so you might naturally ask, well, Austin, where do we get wisdom? And that's where the Bible comes in and tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I hope you see where we're getting in our text as we have two Hebrew midwives who feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. And it gave them wisdom. How do we live faithfully in exile? We replace our fear with the fear of the Lord. 
Something amazing is happening in our text this morning, in the structure of our text. I want you to notice a few things with me. Look at verse 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16 is the king of Egypt, or Pharaoh, giving commands to murder the sons of Israel, the Hebrew sons. And then in verse 22, we're seeing that exact same thing happen. The king of, Israel, uh, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he is commanding people to murder the sons of the Hebrew. Then in verse 17, we've got the fear of the midwives. They feared God, and so they don't do what the king of Egypt has commanded them. And then in verse 20 and 21, the concept of fear comes in up again. Uh, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So we've got two bracketed statements on the outside, which should drive our attention to the center of those two bracketed statements. And here in the center of commands to kill and fear of God is a showdown between the midwives and Pharaoh. The way biblical narrative often works is that it will compare characters to reveal emphasis. And here in our text, we have some unique characters. I want us to notice one more thing. The midwives, they fear God. I think that's clear in the text. Verse 17, the midwives feared God. All right, cool. We got that one down. Um, but they aren't the only ones afraid in this text. Look at Exodus 1, verse 9 and 10. That's why context helps us. This is the king of Egypt, Pharaoh speaking. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What does that sound like? It sounds like fear, driving decisions. Now, look with me at verse 12. But the more the people of Israel were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread about, and the Egyptians were in dread or fear of the people of Israel. There's a lot of fear happening in our passage today. Pharaoh is afraid. He's afraid of the people of Israel. He's afraid of their multiplication. He's afraid that they will multiply and he will lose his power and his fear motivates his action in the world. You see, what you fear is what you serve. What you fear is what you serve. Today in our text, we're getting a showdown, yes, between the king of Egypt and the midwives. But more importantly, we're getting a showdown between ungodly, sinful fear leading to foolishness and the right fear, the fear of the Lord, which leads to wisdom. Let's look at Pharaoh. This is what the text is doing. The text is inviting us to compare and contrast our characters this morning. We have ungodly fear in Pharaoh. We have righteous fear in the midwives. And so let's just spend a moment looking at what ungodly fear looks like. See, Pharaoh isn't afraid of the Israelites because they are a large nation. 
Right? He's not like, wow, it's just such a large nation, we've got to be afraid of them. There are other large nations in the world that he's not at that point in time saying he's afraid of. There's something behind them being a large nation. He's afraid of the Israelites because there is something that he doesn't want to lose. He doesn't want to lose his power. Do you see that? They're too many and too mighty for us. Let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and then escape. He's afraid of losing his power and his control. He is solely interested in self-preservation, maintaining his position as a place, as one in the place of God. You see, the Egyptians, they believed that Pharaoh was a God and he held life and death in his hands. And so Pharaoh, fearing the loss of his power, fearing the loss of his identity, acts out of that fear and finds himself an enemy of God's people and an enemy of God's promises. He has become the serpent that in Genesis 3.15, in the very beginning of our Bible, wages war against the offspring of God's people, specifically the sons. I want us to pause here for a moment, and I want us to think about this, actively think about this. What do you fear losing the most? What are you afraid of? Let me unpack what I mean by that. Um, if I'm afraid of walking down dark alleyways in the middle of the night, it's not necessarily because I'm afraid of concrete or because I'm afraid of the dark. But it's probably because I'm afraid of what might happen to me in that place and who might show up. My fear is maybe of something, but it's rooted in what I'm afraid to lose. Not all fear is inherently bad. I mean, I mean, fear at times will drive you to not play on the train tracks when a train is coming. We would never say, ah, well, you didn't fear God, so you got off the train tracks, you idiot. That's not what we would say. We would say, no, good, you responded rightly to the fear that was in front of you, and you got off the train tracks. You were not foolish. But ungodly fear of life, like when the Bible says do not be afraid, it's talking about an ungodly response to the scary things in life. Ungodly fear looks at the scary things in life and those things begin to take hold and have a greater hold on the life of the person than God does. And so in the back of my mind, I'm not wondering all the time, where is God and what is he doing and what is he up to? I'm wondering, where is this thing and how is it going to affect my life and how will I lose something? You see, an ungodly response to fear is that our life centers on our fears instead of on God. We're motivated by the things we're afraid of. What you fear is what you serve. That's why the Bible tells us, do not be afraid. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about apathy towards fear. It's not talking about apathy towards that long list of things that the news is talking about. But it's saying, don't let fear of what's out there 
turn our lives to be centered on the external fears instead of on the Creator. Don't let fear turn your gaze from the King towards the storm. I'll be honest, I, I fear a lot of things. I don't think I'm the only one. But man, I know, I know like a genuine fear in my life, um, which has grown recently in, in, in months. It's been like a loss of my wife and kids. That's a good fear, right? Like I shouldn't want to lose my wife and kids. But if that fear starts to drive me to make decisions like not showing hospitality when the Lord would show me to ho- have me show hospitality, then I'm driven by my fear and not by the Lord. I got in a car accident a few months ago, and man, I'm just going to be honest, driving's a bit different right now. Like, it's weird. I look in the rearview mirror and people are behind me. I'm like, okay, don't, you better see me. Do not, do not hit me. And I have to like come down after that afterwards. I'm like, man, this is weird. It's a weird thing to be doing right now. But the right response to that fear is not to say, I can never drive a car. I can never go to work where I need to go. I can never be with the people of God when I need to be with the people of God. Because that would be allowing my fear to drive me. It's easy to do. Shortly after the accident, I was having trouble processing information um, and remembering things. Like my memory was just shot for a few days. We were, we were lucky, and I should just say blessed, that the Lord has um, used Advent as a time to kind of rewrite and write sermons early. And so I had like all my sermons written, and I just had to read them for the uh, Advent season, which made life really easy for that, that portion of time. But it, man, if you would have asked me to write a sermon in that, I would not have been able to. I literally would not have been able to. I could not process information uh, correctly. And um, a lot of my identity is caught up in this, what I do here on Sunday mornings. I was afraid. I was really afraid what might happen if um, things didn't go the way that I hoped that they would go. And sometimes that, that fear drove me more than trusting the Lord and knowing that this is his church and not my church. That, that, that he is the Lord of this place, not me. And if he shows up, everything's going to be fine. I, I can miss a Sunday. He, he won't. You know, like that's, that's fear. Like so much of my identity can be wrapped up in this. And really it comes down to what will it say about me? If this fails, what will it say about me if I lose this thing? And if I'm not careful, that fear will drive me to a lack of faithfulness. Um, And I'm not the only one. What we fear is what we serve. And it's vital in our lives that we replace our fear with fear of the Lord. In a culture like ours that idolizes safety, the new currency is the promise of a life free from fear. So the marketing technique in our day and age, it becomes you need what we offer to live a life without fear. And let me just ask, like, how's that going for us? (laughs) 
Like anxiety is higher than it has ever been. There's a commercial I, I saw recently, and maybe you've seen it too. Um, I mean, it's a kind of like dimly lit room, and it opens on a refrigerator. And uh, this ominous voice comes in, and the music is ominous, and it says, Do you know if you have milk right now? Do you know its condition? Are you afraid to look? <laughs> Who knows? And then the voice rises and becomes happy and the music rises and the lighting rises and it says, Who cares? <laughs> because now fresh milk is always on hand. DoorDash, your door to crisis-free breakfasts. <laughs> and so a low-grade fear starts with breakfast. You did not know that breakfast was causing you fear and anxiety, but don't worry, DoorDash has solved it. Ungodly fear is in the driver's seat, and it's killing us. It's killing us. Uh, I, I read a book recently called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves, and I cannot recommend this book enough. It's about the fear of the Lord, and, and he says this, he says, these days it seems like everyone is talking about a culture of fear. From Twitter to television, we fret about global terrorism, extreme weather, pandemics, political turmoil. In political campaigns and elections, we continually see fear rhetoric used by politicians who recognize that fear drives voting patterns. And in our digitalized world, the speed at which information and news are disseminated means that we are flooded with more causes to worry than ever. We've responded to that by trying to get rid of fear itself. Yet that attempt to eradicate fear as we would eradicate a disease has effectively made comfort the complete absence of fear. It becomes a health category or even a moral category where discomfort was once considered quite normal, it's now deemed an essentially unhealthy thing. Jamin Roller, in a sermon he preached about the fear of the Lord, he says this, he says, when the culture is pleasure-seeking and the religion is pain-pacifying and the goal of life is pain-avoiding, what do you get? Fear. Constant, incessant fear. And that's the environment we live in. And this is, what, this is what drives Pharaoh. Fear is in the driver's seat. And that fear that is in the driver's seat for Pharaoh's life is the fear that drives so many of us. Pharaoh has lived his life in fear of losing what he cannot keep. And because of it, he's become a fool. You notice the interaction between the midwives and Pharaoh? It's humorous, isn't it? It's making fun of him. He calls them, he says, what's going on here? And the midwives, they say the Hebrew women are more vigorous than the Egyptian women, which is like an insult at the same time as it is a humorous response. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, okay, probably checks out. It's good. <laughs> No further questions, Your Honor. He's a fool. He's laughable. 
He's grasping at power and grasping at control because he's afraid of losing it. And he's afraid of what it'll say about him. And that leads to him actively working against God and actively working against God's promises in the world. So how do we avoid the life of Pharaoh? How do we avoid the life of ungodly, sinful fear? The only way forward is to replace our fear with the fear of the Lord. The only way forward is to replace our fear with the fear of the Lord. Now, you may be in here this morning and you say, Austin, what is the fear of the Lord? And, and my quick answer to that is this is a lot harder to explain than it is to see in a life. And so, with that being said, let's look at Shifra and Pua, their response of fear. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Shifra and Pua, they received this command from the ruling power of their day, kill the babies in the land, kill the baby boys in the land. What are they going to do? How are they going to respond? How are they going to navigate this? They fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. Matthew 10, Jesus is having a conversation about the coming persecution for his people. They will preach the gospel and it will lead to discomfort and some of them will be uh, beaten and some of them will even die for their proclamation of the good news of God's kingdom. And this is what he tells his disciples in that moment. He tells them this is what's about to happen. And then he says, do not fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul. The fear of the Lord it has two necessary components. The first is the fear of the Lord as our creator. This is Psalm 33, 6-9. It says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You see, Pharaoh, he commands and people rebel against his commands. But the Lord commands and it stands firm. Fear of the Lord is looking at his creation, looking at the creation of the world, recognizing that God is the creator and being overwhelmed by his power being overwhelmed by his majesty and his greatness. The language here is striking. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. Some of you, most of you, have piles of laundry at home. That you have gone to, you've gone to pick it up and you try to get all of it in one grab and then you notice the sock behind you and you're debating whether or not you should just go straight for the couch or the bed where you're going to leave the laundry before you fold it 38 days later. And so you, you look back and you're like, all right, I've got to get the sock. I've got to get it. Because two trips is too much. And so you come back and you're now trying to like, figure out how to keep all the clothes in your hands while getting the sock. And if you were to videotape yourself doing this, you would feel more uncomfortable and afraid of your body than ever before. But the Lord, he gathers the oceans and he doesn't drop even one bit. And as he speaks, 
all things are created. Like what marvelous majesty. How overwhelming is that? And you can think about that when you're trying to grab a sock off the ground. You couldn't even contain one load of laundry that was probably too big because you like to live outside of your limits. But the Lord can contain the oceans in his grasp. We are overwhelmed by his power. Overwhelmed. See, the the midwives, they recognize that the truest power is not Pharaoh. Pharaoh who is just grasping for significance. So much so that he tries to do something in the dark. Do you notice that he has the midwives do this as they're on the stool? It's like, don't even do it in broad daylight. Kind of make it look like a miscarriage. Kind of make it look as if this was a stillbirth. Like, how tragic. He's trying to hide his decisions even. He doesn't even have the power to do that. He's grasping at significance, but the midwives recognize that God who upholds all the thing by the word all things by the word of his power is the true king. The midwives, they recognize that Pharaoh is a fool. He doesn't hold the power that he is so afraid of losing. And so they refuse to listen to him, instead recognizing that God is God and he is not. And God is God and they are not. Their fear does not drive them to disobedience because they strive for control. Instead, they walk in obedience, preserving the sons of Israel. Now, maybe that's not that important to us. We just think, ah, oh, it's just boys. Like, that's kind of weird. Well, and maybe we'd even argue, like, well, Pharaoh wanted to kill the boys because they're the military power, and so if you kill the boys, then, you know, then they're not that powerful anymore. But there's something bigger going on here that the midwives were aware of. You see, God sets the tone for their lives. And so they remember that in Genesis 3, God promised to defeat Satan through a son. And they remember that that son was going to come through the line of Abraham that God promised to bless the nations through Abraham's son. And Abraham's son is Isaac, and Isaac's son is Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to 12 sons, which become the nation of Israel. And so the Hebrew midwives, they know that to kill the sons of Israel is to go against God's plan of redemption for the nations. Pharaoh might not know it, but there's a power behind him motivating him to take out God's chosen One and the midwives say, no. No. And they become first in the line of deliverers in the next two chapters. The next chapter, we're going to see three other women show up to deliver the sons of Israel. And they will deliver deliverers for Israel. And they will deliver the people who will one day be a part of the line of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, they feared the Lord, and he set the tone for their life. Here's an enemy waging war against the sons, waging war against God's promises, and they do not fear the enemy. They fear the Lord, holding fast to his gospel promises, and they don't do what Pharaoh wants. A lot of words have been given to the ethical implications of the midwives' response to the king of Egypt. 
I'm not going to give him as many words because I don't think it's necessary. I think we picked up on the humor. We picked up that this is just kind of comical. He's making fun of Pharaoh, but Pharaoh, he's like, why have you done this? Why did you let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Um, I don't think they're lying. I don't think they are. I think it's entirely possible that they just said, hey, don't call us when you're about to give birth. And then before the midwives came, the Hebrew women gave birth. They feared the Lord. And they chose wisdom in the presence of a fool. They chose wisdom in the presence of a fool. So we mentioned there's two components to the fear of the Lord. The first is the fear of the Lord as creator, that he is greater than, he is high above. You struggle with laundry, he holds the oceans. That is what we're talking about is the fear of the Lord as creator, the one who truly holds life and death in his hands, the one who is the eternal judge for all of time. But the, that's an incomplete fear. Because if that's our fear, we, we go from awe to dread to fleeing. In Exodus 20, verse 20, God gives his people a command. He says, do not fear. I'm going to read it. I read it to us last week, but I'll read it to us again. Exodus 20, verse 20. Uh, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, so that you may not sin. And the people stood far off. You see, they feared wrongly because they associated God as just creator and they move away from him. But true fear of the Lord moves us towards him in relationship. The second component of the fear of the Lord is the fear of the Lord as father. As father. Notice the result of the midwife's fear. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. God dealt kindly with them. The fear of the Lord did not lead them to dread. It led them to be dealt with kindly. This is Psalm 25, 14. Notice the language. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The friendship of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't typically hang out with people that I'm like, yeah, they might just punch me any given minute. I'm kind of afraid of that. I like my face. Now, the fear of the, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The response of the Lord to the people who fear him above all else is friendship. Not running from him, but running towards him. This is Jeremiah 33, 8 and 9. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. That is crazy. I will forgive them. If you've read the book of Jeremiah, that's an insane thing to promise because the people were messed up. Messed up. Go read Jeremiah 5. And this is, I'll forgive them. I'll forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. My people shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for them. Did you hear that? Fear 
and trembling because of good, because of prosperity. Maybe the way to describe this a little bit more, we're talking about how this is hard to explain, but maybe we can, um, we can pick this up when you picture a man on his wedding day and he is shaking at the knees and he's quivering as he sees his bride come down the aisle and tears flow from his eyes. He is trembling and he is rejoicing out of the beauty that's been offered to him. This is, this is the response of the fear of the Lord. Trembling, rejoicing because of what's been offered to us. Psalm 103, 13 to 17 says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear them. Did you hear that language? Everlasting to everlasting on those who fear them. Before you were created. Before time began. The steadfast love of the Lord was placed upon those who fear the Lord. How? How is that possible? What a great question. We must see this. The God of the universe who created all things and holds the power of life and death in his hands, he is kindly disposed toward his children. Fear of him is creator that causes us to run from him. That's ungodly fear, that's sinful fear. But fear of him as creator, that he is so much greater and so much more than anything else, and yet he has welcomed me as a father who shows compassion to those who fear him. That his steadfast love is on us from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. You see, this God... This God, the creator, he is king over all the earth. He is awesome in power. He is righteous. He is holy. He is matchless in all his ways. And there has never been, nor will there ever be, anyone like him. He is eternally existing in himself without need of anything or anyone to be God. His voice makes the barren wilderness quake and twists mighty oaks and strips the forests bare. He is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. He speaks and creation happens. He is before all things and in, all, in him all things hold together. And then he reveals himself to us as a father. He is the defender of the defenseless, the father of the fatherless, the protector, the provider, the deliverer. And since before the foundation of the world and eternity passed, before you even existed, God the Father has been loving God the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And he pours that out onto the pages of creation. He pours that out onto the pages of creation so that we might know this God as Father through His Son. Through His Son. This is Isaiah 11. This is talking about Christ. I'm going to get us there real quick. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. This is pointing forward to when Jesus will come. And this is what it says about Him. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight 
shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. Did you catch that? This is talking about Christ who has no sin in him and who has no need to fear judgment. And yet his delight is in the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. In Jesus, the steadfast love of the Lord is made available to us because he has delighted in the fear of God our Father from eternity past and he invites you and I to take part in that eternal relationship by adopting us into his family as sons. By adopting us into his family as sons. This is Romans 8. For we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, which is a fear of dreadfulness, right? But we receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Christ gives to us what belongs to him, sonship. And we now relate to God as the majestic creator who is not just great, but who is gracious to us. How do we stop fearing the world? We grow in our delight of the fear of God as our creator who holds all things in his hands and who is kindly disposed to us in Christ Jesus. You want to know how we live faithfully in a fear-driven world, in a world and in a nation that looks much more like Egypt than it does heaven? We fear the Lord. We delight in his wisdom. We delight in his son who has invited us into a relationship with the Creator, not just as all-powerful, but as all-loving. My invitation to us this morning is that we would bring our ungodly fear to God. The very admission of, Lord, I'm afraid of things that you have told me not to be afraid of is to move towards Him. The very admission Man, I think sometimes the reason why people don't confess sin is because they don't fear the Lord. They fear man. All the time. That's why we don't. But if the Lord is our creator and he is kindly disposed towards us, then why would I fear being honest about where I'm really at and what I've really done? Bringing our ungodly fear to the Lord is moving towards him. It's moving towards him. And the second thing I would recommend for us this morning is stay close to the cross. There, the fearfulness of God and all his great justice and all his mercy is most clearly and profoundly displayed. The cross is where we receive forgiveness without which we could never approach God or ever want to approach God. And in the cross of Jesus, he is mediating an eternal relationship with the Father. He is no longer a dreadful judge to us, but kindly disposed towards us. If you want to know how to live faithfully, in exile. You've got to replace your fear with the fear of the Lord. And the only way you do that is if the Spirit does a work in you and helps you to see Jesus. You have received sonship. The Creator God who holds all things in His hands 
is kindly disposed towards you only in Christ Jesus. But in Christ Jesus. Man. What good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these two women, Shifra and Pua, who feared the Lord. We pray that we would be a people who fears the Lord. Lord, that we would see Jesus. We would see the identity that he has made known to us, that he would gift us the Father. Lord, I thank you for Maria's prayer this morning that to all who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God and he doesn't have grandchildren. (laughs) I love that, Lord. You invite us to be children. The God of the universe who holds all power and all things in his hands, who is not grasping at significance, but is the very reason for it all, has called us his children. So we pray this morning that we would see Jesus and that as we see Jesus, the Father would be revealed to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to partake in communion together. And so we'll ask you guys to come forward. You can uh, grab.